says, then Peter opened his mouth and said, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are his witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, who they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, Whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished as many came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard him speak with tongues and magnify God. And then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. And then they asked him to stay a few days. And Father, we just humbly ask for your gracious help from the Holy Spirit to understand the word of God this morning, that your same spirit who inspired and recorded these things for us in the word of God would just now be our interpreter and our teacher and, and the one who would just speak in personal ways to each and every one of us gathered here this morning. Lord, you know what we need to hear and we believe that you're a God who speaks. So give us a heart that wants to listen and an ear that's open and we pray that you'd bless your word and speak to us in a very personal and clear and direct way this morning through the scriptures. And we ask in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I'm convinced that the Holy Spirit of God wants to powerfully work and change people's lives, that his intent is to turn people toward Jesus. And the question becomes, what is one of the fundamental ways that that happens? The answer, which we see very clearly this morning, is through the proclamation of God's word. It is through the preaching or the proclamation of the truth from God's word that the Holy Spirit is able to honor Jesus and to work in very, very powerful ways. Uh, what wonderful things happen when the Holy Spirit powerfully blesses the preaching of the word of God. Uh, that's what we see happening in our text today. Now, this is certainly one of those passages, as we come to the end of chapter 10 this morning, where it is definitely important to consider the backstory of what's going on here. For sake of context, if you'll bear with me in patience for a few moments to set the context, it will much more be, uh, help us to understand what's really being described in our passage. Acts chapter 10, as we saw last time, is a turning point in early church history. It is a pivotal moment in the early church where the doorway of the gospel of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ is now officially, and I stress the word officially, officially swung open to the Gentile people. And we said last time the word Gentile just refers to anyone who is non-Jewish by nationality. In the Bible, we have Jews, God's chosen people from the beginning who God worked through to bring the Savior, Jesus Christ, into the world. And, and we have those who are referred to as Gentiles, the majority of you and I probably in this room this morning, all those who are non-Jewish by nationality. And what began 
as a predominantly Jewish early church, now at this point historically becomes fully intermingled with both Jew and Gentiles being joined together, dwelling as one spiritual family, just as God had always planned in his intention throughout the ages to accomplish. In fact, Jesus even predicted this reality when he was with his 12 disciples who were Jewish. John 10, Jesus said this. Jesus said to them, and other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them I must also bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. That is, in the person and the work of Jesus Christ and what he did for us, there is a unifying work spiritually that God brought to pass through his work in his son Jesus Christ. Galatians 3, Paul says, For you are all children of God through faith, in Christ Jesus. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And we see this now happening in Acts chapter 10, last time in our story together from verse 1 down through 33. Remember, there was a Gentile man, a Roman centurion named Cornelius. And the Bible told us that he was a very good man, a moral man, a religious man, that he prayed, that he gave generously, that he feared God. He was a very good man, you might say, but yet though he was a good man, a moral and religious man, he was not yet saved. He was not yet in a right relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. He was respectful towards God. So God, wanting to give him further understanding, seeing that he was seeking light and clarity, realizing I'm religious, but what's still missing inside of me? I pray prayers. I do fear God, but what's still missing? So God gives him a vision to open his eyes and to let him see that God wants to give him more clarity. And he tells him to send for a man named Peter who was dwelling in Joppa and that Peter would come and tell him what things he must do, particularly to come into further right relationship with God. So he sends for Peter to come and to speak with him. Meanwhile, Peter was praying and the Lord gives him a vision where he's at, revealing to Peter some understanding to enlighten him to show that God has now made all things acceptable and no longer is there to be distinctions. And this vision that God gave to Peter particularly was to reveal to him this reality that there was to be no distinction between this nationality and that nationality. This animosity between Jews and Gentiles should not exist and that God intended in Christ in this thing we call the church to bring together Jew and Gentile into one unified spiritual family. And so this vision was to picture the Jews and Gentiles as one in Christ and that God equally loves all people. And that Jesus came to save the whole world, everyone from every nationality and ethnicity, that God equally loves all and each person who comes to God directly can have the same access to have relationship with him. And particularly that a Gentile did not first have to become a Jew before they could enter into a saving relationship with God's son, Jesus. So verse 17, if you look back with me, it tells me that while Peter was wondering about this vision he had and what it meant, behold, the men Cornelius had sent were making inquiry at that house for him. And verse 19 says that while Peter thought about the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, these men are seeking you. Arise, go with them doubting nothing the lord tells them for i have sent them i've sent them to you that you can come and speak to them we then read in verse 22 that they said to him cornelius the centurion a just man who fears god and has a good reputation among the nation of the jews was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house to hear words from you so they say look cornelius was told by god that we're to come get you and that through you god would tell us what we need to do to come into a right relationship with him to a greater degree so verse 24 says the following day they then came as they traveled entered caesarea peter and this group who traveled with him and cornelius was waiting for them and had called together all of his relatives and close friends so he brings together his friends and his relatives they're waiting for peter to come and to tell them this message 
from God of how to be in right relationship fully with him. Verse 28, Peter, after some introductory comments, said, you know, look at verse 28, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me, Peter says, that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection. As soon as I was sent for, I asked, for what reason have you sent me? And then Cornelius recounts to him this vision that he saw and how God told him to summon Peter to his house. So verse 32, he said, send therefore to Joppa, call Simon, whose surname is Peter. And when he comes, he'll speak to you. Verse 33, before we jump into our text, he says, Cornelius to Peter, so I sent for you immediately and you've done well to come. Now, therefore, we are all present before God to hear all things commanded you by God. Verse 34, we continue. And then Peter at this moment here opened his mouth in response and said, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. So as Peter now begins to answer the question of this assembly that's longing to hear from God, this assembly who's come together, Cornelius, and he's brought his relatives and his friends and they're there and they say, listen, we believe God wants to speak to us. And he said that you would come and do that what does God want us to know? The first thing that Peter begins is to express, <clears throat> excuse me, here in verse 34, that he realizes through what God has shown him recently that God extends his love and grace and opportunity to be accepted through Christ to all people equally. He says, I perceive, God's made it clear to me that God shows no partiality. Again, unlike people, God does not have favorites. God does not show favoritism, nor does God give special treatment or grant exceptions to anybody on his standards. God doesn't allow anyone to have a special privilege. God is a, if you would, an equal opportunity savior. He offers the same to everyone. He doesn't give exceptions to any people. He doesn't give special opportunities or privileges to other. Peter says there, look at the text, verse 34. He says, the truth of the matter is this, God shows no partiality. Interesting that word Peter uses there, partiality. The Greek term literally speaks to look upon the face or to look upon one's appearance and then determine how to treat somebody. The idea there is first you wait to see who it is, then you decide how you're going to treat them. But you don't decide how you're going to treat the person until you see who it is, and then you treat them in regards to who it is when you see their identity. Interesting, the word partiality by definition speaks of showing favoritism to one person over another and not giving equal treatment. And see, God in his perfect love and his wisdom and his righteousness will not show partiality or favoritism to anyone. He holds the same standards for everybody. He offers every human being the same opportunities, the same promises, the same privileges, the same blessings. That's why Peter says there in verse 35, in every nation, that is anyone of any ethnicity, any nationality, in every nation, whoever, he says, will fear him and work righteousness, has the opportunity to be accepted by him. The idea is, is he's saying, look, despite someone's nationality, Peter says, who they are, what their background is, he says, if they honor God, and they respect and reverence God and his word and his ways, and they're willing to do what is right in his sight as a result, he will accept them willingly into relationship with him. He'll allow them to have access into fellowship with him. Now, Peter here is not, be careful, he's not teaching in this moment salvation by works. That's not what Peter is saying there when he says anybody who works righteousness will be accepted, as if we can work our way into right acceptance with God. And many people's religious concept holds that standard that we can work our way through enough religious good deeds into right relationship with God. Peter's going to completely refute that and what he's going to say in the verses below where he's going to say it's only by believing in Jesus 
a person can have forgiveness of sins. That's not what Peter's saying here. That would contradict the rest of Scripture. What Peter is simply saying is God shows no partiality, and he wants everybody to have access into a saving relationship and experience with his son, Jesus Christ. That God wants everyone of all nationalities to have the same loving experience with God, that he shows partiality towards no uh, uh, you know, group in any way. And it's important that we remember this, certainly as human beings, because people in our sinful weakness, we do make the hurtful, foolish mistake amongst one another of showing partiality on this planet. We do it all the time. We do it in the way that we treat different people groups, different subcultures, people of different nationalities. We do it in our own family for Pete's sake. And some of you are saying, oops, he said that. Yeah, it happens. We make this mistake as human beings where we show special treatment and partiality and we give special treatment to those who we view as more important or maybe just who are more important to us. And so therefore we, we give them a little extra blessing or we show them maybe a little you know a, additional allowance that we shouldn't or we make it a little easier for them and we give extra to, because we're showing partiality or favoritism. And then on the other side of that, we can very easily as well uh, have those who we maybe we view as less important, or maybe there are those who are less important to us, and so therefore to them, we don't make it as easy. We don't offer to help as much, or we don't offer the same privileges or exceptions, and we kind of hold back. Look, at times, every person in this room, I assure you, because I know what humanity's like, we have all been the recipient to some degree of feeling like partiality was shown. And we were hurt by that. And we were wounded by that. And by the same token, to some degree, we probably all have failed as well and at times mistakenly shown partiality in a way that we shouldn't in our dealings with other people. The important thing is that we remember this, that'll never happen with God. God would never do that. And that's not the way that God functions. We should remember that the heart of God is to not show partiality. God does not show partiality. The Bible tells us that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart. God relates to people regarding heart condition, and we would be wise to begin to move in that direction more in our lives as well. So understanding that God shows no partiality to any group or any nationality, Peter therefore begins to really begin to give his sermon. Now, verse 36, he says, the word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord, Peter says, of all, the emphasis being on all there. What Peter is doing is he's informing his Gentile listeners, look, I realize the same message that God sent beginning with the days of John the Baptist preaching about Jesus, the same message God sent to the children of Israel, he says that same message also now is coming to the Gentile peoples, to you as well. And this is what the heart of God is, Peter understands. And what was that message? It was the preaching, it says there, that peace comes through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Now here Peter is zeroing in on the primary thing that all people need to know. And what is that? It's to know about having a personal experience with the Lord Jesus Christ in their own life. And so Peter here in our verses is beginning to mention a few things to us and to these Gentile listeners about Jesus. The first thing we take note of that he mentions about Jesus there in verse 36 is he says, Jesus is Lord of all. The word Lord means supreme ruler. He's Lord of all. He's the supreme ruler over all of creation and over every created being that exists on this planet. That he wants to be the Lord of all nations, not just the American nation. He wants to be Lord of all nations, even nations, again, that we may in partiality may look negatively upon because maybe we watch a little too much news. And so all of a sudden we hate an entire nation or we hate a particular nationality just because of certain things we see happening in an evil regime or because of some evil leaders of a nation. And God would want our hearts not to be inclined in that way. He wants to be the Lord of all nations. He wants all people of all nationalities to serve him as Lord. Romans ten twelve says, There is no distinction between Jew or Greek for the same Lord over all 
is rich, gracious, kind, the idea is, to all who call upon him. Look, we should always remember, and I ask you particularly with this congregation, we should always remember Jesus desires a multicultural, multi-ethnic church. That's the heart of the Lord. Where people of different nationalities and different age groups and different socioeconomic status can find a common bond under the Lordship of Jesus Christ recognizing that we are all in the same place of humble, broken, sinful people before this Lord who wants to rule over all of us and bring unity amongst us and cause us to value one another. He also mentions secondarily about Jesus here in verse 36. He says that there is peace through Jesus Christ our Lord. So peace in two ways. First of all, peace among people and then also peace within people. That Jesus is able to do both. That there, through Jesus is peace among people. And again, the same idea. That through Christ, when we come together in Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us that there is then a unity in the Spirit. We become one spiritual family in Christ. There's love. There's humility. There should be the ability of us to have the heart of God to where we then value each person no matter what the color of their skin or what their age bracket, no matter what their economic status is, that we equally value every person, one another, and we understand and appreciate the distinctions and the differences amongst us, which God has created, so life's not boring, and that we do have differences and distinctions in culture, and, 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 and God's designed those to complement one another, and at the same time, we value that there's an equality amongst us, that there's no superiority of any one people group in any way, but that we equally find peace through Jesus. I'll tell you, Jesus Christ can be the, the most wonderful peacemaker among any group where there's division or discord. You got a family when there's division, you bring the lordship of Jesus into that family and all of a sudden, unity starts to happen. Because there's forgiveness and love and healing and people submitting to the lordship of Jesus. Jesus has a wonderful way. And look, where there's disunity, perhaps the frank answer is the lordship of Jesus isn't quite as strong as it should be in the family. And perhaps if everyone would submit to the lordship of Jesus a little more, unity and healing and peace would start to come to pass a little bit more because Jesus brings peace through his lordship. Ephesians 2 says he brings down the middle wall of separation as he did between Jew and Gentile. But through Jesus, there is also peace, not just among people, but Jesus also supplies peace within people. There's peace through Jesus because a person cannot make peace with God until they come to Jesus Christ personally. It's when we submit to the Lordship of Jesus, accept him as the Savior of our soul, that we make peace with God and we experience an inward peace in our soul that we are now in right relationship with God. And I'll tell you, I can say this from personal experience and counseling with others. It's peace within people that allows them to have peace with people. Let me say that again. It's peace within people that allows them to have peace with people. Point being this. Until somebody resolves the conflict within themselves, they'll never stop battling with everybody else amongst them. A lot of times the reason why a person is always battling and having issues with everybody else is because they haven't solved the conflict inside themselves. And once you solve the conflict within yourself and you experience the peace of the Lord in your life, it's amazing how you're able to function much more peacefully with other people with the love and humility and forgiveness of Jesus. So Peter's going to preach Christ and his salvation to this Gentile assembly now because he wants to offer them this peace within. And he knows that the Romans, like Centurion and his family were, had already been exposed to this person of Jesus of Nazareth throughout Israel. It's kind of hard to hide Jesus in his public ministry. So Peter wants to reveal some things to give them further understanding. Speaking of Jesus, he says, going on in verse 38, excuse me, verse 37, that word which you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. So he said, you, you, you lived in this area of Israel. They had Roman occupation over Israel. He says, you, you know these things. How, he says, verse 38, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power 
who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. And we, Peter says, are his witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree, him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us, Peter says, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So here, Peter in these verses really gives a summation of the life and the ministry and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Speaking of Jesus' earthly ministry in verse 38 there, he speaks of how God empowered his son Jesus' ministry by the Holy Spirit. And that happened at the baptism of Jesus. As Jesus was baptized, it says, the heavens opened and the Spirit descended upon Jesus to anoint him for his public ministry. And Jesus operated in full dependence upon the Spirit as he served. He also refers to what characterized the ministry of Jesus. I love what verse 38 says, one of the characterizing marks of Jesus' ministry. Look at it there. It says, he went about doing good. I love that. I love that characterizing mark of Jesus' ministry, our Lord. He just went about doing good. It just speaks of his, you know, his love being expressed in practical servanthood. Jesus lived out his life as a man and in his ministry, simply going about, look, just doing good things. Just doing good things in the world. Lots of people are doing bad things. Jesus went about just doing good things in the world, doing good things for people, doing good things to people, kindly being helpful in his activities, in his teaching, in his service, and what he did. He just went about thinking in his mind, hey, how can I do something good for that person over there? What can I do good for this people who are assembled this day? And he went about just doing good in his compassion among humanity to bless and benefit those he came into contact with. And for those of us this morning who know Jesus, the Bible says that the spirit of Christ dwells within us. So guess what Jesus wants to use your body to do now? To go about doing good. He says, can I use your hands and your feet and your mind and your eyes and your words and your physical strength? Can I now use you and in your job and in your school and in your family and, and in your just would you just on my behalf, would you just go about and do good? Just go around doing good to people and in different ways, spreading the goodness of God on this earth to help offset some of the wickedness and evil. Jesus, it also says there in verse 38, went about healing all who were oppressed by the devil. That is Jesus in his earthly ministry, as we see it in the Gospels. He used his power and authority to heal people of incredible suffering in their lives. We look at the life of Jesus and so often we see him healing those with sicknesses and illnesses touching those who were suffering in their bodies with health issues and mental struggles and disabilities. And oftentimes the Bible reveals to us that many, some of those who were suffering were actually suffering because they were actually being tormented or oppressed by the devil. Jesus tells us in his own words, the devil is a thief who wants to rob, kill and destroy people's lives. Peter himself, writing later on in his letter, said that the devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That's the picture of the devil. Like a ferocious lion trying to devour people's lives, ruin lives, do whatever he can to bring ruinous harm into people's lives. It says there, verse 38, the devil oppresses people's lives. And the word oppress means to use one's authority in unjust ways to keep someone under your control. That's what the devil does. He uses his authority to bring hardship and cruel mistreatment to keep people oppressed and under his control in a ruinous way in their life. That's what the devil wants to do, to keep people oppressed and held back in various different ways he does through his cruel activities. When people aren't even conscious, it's the devil who's actually the one doing it in their life. But thanks be to God, Jesus came to liberate and deliver those who are oppressed by the devil's cruel mistreatment. Jesus and his love came into this world and the Bible tells us he was manifested to destroy the works of the devil, 
to set people free from the devil's tyranny and cruel treatment in their life that's bringing ruinous things into their life and their lifestyle that jesus wants to set people free we need to believe as the lord's people certainly that the lord can set people free from the oppression of the devil in their life and that we would be open to be his vessels however he wants to use us through intercessory prayer or speaking the truth or helping in a way to help people be liberated from the devil's destruction in their lives and bringing such ravaging effects to try and destroy them. Peter says here in our text, he says, we were eyewitnesses of these things. He says, we saw Jesus do this stuff. We saw the miracles. We heard the teachings that help people in such good ways in their lives as they heard the truth. He says, we saw people healed and the, the miracles, and we saw people delivered from Satan's control over their life. Peter says, we saw this firsthand. He also speaks in our text here of, of Jesus' death as well as his ministry. He speaks there of Jesus' death uh, in verse uh, 39. He says how Jesus was killed by hanging on a tree. It speaks symbolically of his crucifixion. That Jesus was put to death as he hung upon a tree. Peter uses that terminology because in the Old Testament, they knew that anyone hung on a tree was considered cursed. And so what Peter's alluding to here in saying this is Jesus hung on a cross to die because he was becoming the full curse of sin for all of humanity. And the curse of sin was coming upon Jesus as he was dying on the cross, taking the punishment for our sins so we could be freed from the curse of sin, from the consequence of sin that we each deserve because of our own failures and mistakes. Look, our sin is what caused Jesus to be killed. There's no need to dispute, well, was it the Jews that killed him? Was it the Gentiles? Was it the Romans? It was me. I'll take the admittance on that. Our sin killed Jesus because somebody needed to die for sin. The wages of sin is death. Somebody had to suffer the punishment for sin. Sin must be punished. And Jesus stepped in and took the punishment. He allowed himself to be killed and to suffer that consequence as he was crucified for our sins. Isaiah 53 says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Every one has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. For he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. So Jesus took the curse of our sin upon himself, died in our place, but more than that, then victoriously, Peter says, he, he rose again. Look at verse 40. He was put to death for sin on the cross, but he says God raised him up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all, but he says to those of us chosen witnesses who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. So Peter says here, on the third day, God brought him back. From the dead. He overcame the death process. Remember, Jesus himself would even speak openly and say, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And after I lay my life down, I have the power to take it back up again. And Jesus did that. He came back from among the realm of the dead. How many people you know who've done that? Legitimately. Not somebody who wants a little TV show that tells us about their coming back from the dead story. Jesus did it for real. He was clinically dead for three days and he rose back from among the realm of the dead, defeating the power of death for me and for you so that we can overcome the power of death that when we die, we can enter into the eternal presence of the Lord. And Peter says this risen Lord, he says he showed himself openly to us in his resurrected body. We know the Bible teaches that for 40 days, at least, if not more, for over a month after Jesus rose from the dead, in his resurrected body, he was showing himself openly with his disciples, talking to them about the things of the kingdom of God, spending time with them. Peter says there in verse 41, he says, we ate and drank with him. We had meals with him, Peter said. We saw him with our own eyes in his resurrected body. There was no way you could convince these people, oh, resurrection, that re that's just a myth. Peter says, no, it's not a myth. We ate meals with him. We talked with him for over a month. Peter's saying, look, we were his chosen witnesses because there's no better witness in any court case than what? An eyewitness. You bring an eyewitness into the courtroom, 
That's very strong evidence. And Peter says, we were chosen to be eyewitnesses. We saw him firsthand so that he was so convinced so that the Lord could use him to convey these things. So Peter says, verse 42, he commanded us as his chosen witnesses to preach to the people and to testify as eyewitnesses that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge and the living of the dead to him all the prophets witness that through his name whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins so peter says we received the divine commission from jesus that we were then to go forth and testify to people as eyewitnesses of what he accomplished and what he is offering to all of humanity. He mentions here a few more things about Jesus. The first thing being that the life of Jesus was predicted in the scriptures. Everything about his life, he says there in the beginning of verse 43, to him all the prophets witness. And again, if you go through the Old Testament scriptures, over 300 plus predictions, specific predictions about how the Messiah would come, how God would send the Savior, where he would be born, things about the person and life of the Savior, and Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled every single one of them. Peter's saying, you can't get more validity than that. How much more evidence do you want? He's the one God sent. He wasn't just a man marching through history. He was specifically fulfilling predictions about his life. The idea is that Jesus is credible. He's worthy of being trusted. There are people we believe existed and did things in history that that we have way less evidence about. Jesus fulfilled hundreds of predictions with his life. He mentions as well, secondly, about Jesus, about how he was ordained or appointed by God the Father to be the judge of all mankind. You see what he says in verse 42? He was ordained to be judge of the living and the dead. Jesus said in John 5, for the father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the son, that we should honor the son just as we honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him, for the father has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the son of man. See, both Jesus said and Peter testifies that we all as human beings must give account one day before the judge of all of humanity for the condition of our soul. And that judge is the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the righteous judge. As we pass from this earthly life and enter into the eternal dimension, the Lord Jesus will be the eternal judge who evaluates the condition of our soul and who ultimately is the one who determines whether we're given access to heaven or whether we are sentenced to hell and to eternal judgment. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 9, it's appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. Everybody has the same appointment in this room, one appointment, it's called death. And you don't know the day of that appointment, but it's an appointment you can't cancel. You have to keep it. You have no option. The important thing is that you're prepared for the appointment because it says after that appointment with death, we will face judgment. We're going to stand before the throne of Jesus to give account and Jesus knows everything that is true about my soul and the condition of my soul and where I stand. Everything is laid naked before the eyes of the Lord to whom I'm going to give account. Jesus knows that we're all sinful. Jesus knows we have all failed and missed the standard. And Jesus knows beyond that, he has perfect evidence, have we accepted his terms of how to have our sin forgiven? Have we come to him and let him be the savior of our soul? Or are we for whatever reason that may be refusing what Jesus is offering to us and the way that God says a person gets to heaven? The basis of that ultimate judgment, Peter describes it right there in verse 43. He says, whoever believes in him will receive the remission of sins. See, because of what Jesus did, there's only one way to experience the remission, removal of our sins, which we all have on our account. Everybody does. We all equally fail. The church did not die on the cross for your sins. Oh, I go to church. The church did not die on your cross. for. But I got a good church. I got the best church. I go to the right church. The church did not die on the cross for your sins. 
Why? A pastor, a priest, did not die on the cross for your sins. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died on the cross for your sins and rose again. And that means this, only the Lord Jesus Christ can remove your sins. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can forgive my sins. John, speaking of Jesus, when he looked at him as the ultimate sacrifice, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Only Jesus can take away the guilt and the stain of sin in our soul. Only Jesus can cancel the debt and punishment of sin that we deserve. He's the only one who can give that to us as we come to him in faith. The bottom line is Peter is saying Jesus can either be your savior or he can be your judge. He can be your savior from sin and hell and punishment or he can be your judge who will ultimately say, if you don't want to receive what I'm offering, I'm a righteous God, and so therefore I must give you the punishment that you're choosing to take instead and will banish you then to eternal separation from him. It's only through faith exercised in Jesus that receiving forgiveness of sins can happen. When you believe that, you have to be willing to receive it. Lord, I believe that. I'm a sinner. I believe it. And I believe the only way for my sin to be forgiven is by your son Jesus. And so you come to Jesus And you say, Jesus, I need that for myself. I want you to forgive me. As Peter is speaking this day, and he comes to this moment, verse 43, when he says to this hungry crowd wanting to hear from God, they're longing, remember, for what do we got to do to be right with God? They hear, verse 43, whoever believes in Jesus will receive remission of sins. And in that moment, their hearts are stirred inwardly, and they're all saying, I believe that. Jesus, we want our sins forgiven. We understand now that this is what we need. This is what we've been missing. We've been trying to be religious. Jesus, we want our sins forgiven. Take our sins. And at that moment, they're believing upon Jesus, no doubt, for the forgiveness of their sins because God honors their faith in a powerful way. As the text concludes, it says, while Peter was, look at this, still speaking. These words, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who heard the word and those of the circumcision, that is those who were Jewish, who believed were astonished as many as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. So as Peter is in the midst of speaking and the hearts of the people who are so receptive, wanting to hear from God, and they start believing what Peter's saying about Jesus, it's at that moment the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, is poured out in this mighty way. And what basically happens here is God, who reserves the right because he's God, he basically just interrupts Peter's sermon, and he kind of like just closes the deal supernaturally on saving the Gentiles. He says, Peter, thanks for your help. I can finish from here. <laughs> and he just... Peter, you don't even need to get three more points in your sermon. They are ready to be saved. And he just stops Peter and he just moves in a powerful way by his spirit and closes the deal as Peter's proclaiming whoever believes on Jesus, their hearts are stirred. The Holy Spirit falls as they're hearing the word of God. And it's almost as if as they begin to hear, just be filled with the spirit and speak with tongues. It's almost as if if you take note, it should look familiar. It's like God is reproducing the Pentecost experience from back in Acts chapter 2. Because the Holy Spirit falls and they begin to worship and praise God. It's almost as if in the speaking, that God's stamping the day with his divine approval to validate that he wants the Gentile saves. And he's saying, look, in the same way I moved powerfully among the Jews in the early church, I am stamping this day with all the same authenticity. He pours out his spirit from heaven. People begin to erupt. The gifts of the spirit begin to spontaneous cause people to worship God. It says there in verse 44, you know, in our text that the spirit is poured out while he's still speaking. They begin calling upon Jesus for salvation. The idea is surrendering to him. And the gifts of the Spirit begin to operate. They begin to worship God in a powerful way. Particularly, Peter describes in verse 46, where Luke writing says that they were hearing the people speak in tongues and magnify God. 
And the implication here, it seems in this unique day, what's happened is the Gentiles in this moment, uniquely in this meeting, are being both saved and baptized with the Holy Spirit simultaneously. Now, we don't see this happening every time in the Bible, but here in this moment, again, this is sort of like a, a, a re-producing you know, of Pentecost with the Gentiles now. This happens. The gift of the Spirit was poured out upon them. And verse 46 says, they began to speak with tongues and magnify God just as they did in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. Again, the Bible teaches that speaking in tongues is a supernatural gift of the Spirit working in believers' lives. So they have to be believers at this point. Because they're now beginning to operate in the spiritual gifts. Speaking of tongues is the spiritual ability, biblically, to pray to God or to praise God with a language that you have not studied or learned naturally. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 particularly speak about this gift in great depth. Uh, it's the ability to worship God and praise God and pray to God with a language you've never studied or learned before. It's a supernatural enablement. Listen, God knows every language. So if God wants to help somebody in a language they've never learned by miraculously giving them the ability, God can do that. Acts chapter 2 tells us that when they were enabled by the Spirit to speak in tongues there, that people said, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. They heard people speaking in their language thinking, they don't, how, do, how do they know Persian? These are Jews. Because God was supernaturally, miraculously enabling them to do this. It's a supernatural enablement from the Spirit to carry on in prayer and praise to God. Listen, beyond our natural reasoning capacities. It's where God says, I'm going to take you beyond your natural mind and through your spirit from the innermost part of your being give you enablement to keep praying and to keep praising me through this miraculous gift. Again, Paul speaking of this says in 1 Corinthians 14, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding, my mind is unfruitful. What's the conclusion? He says, I will pray with the spirit. I will also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the spirit and also sing with understanding. So again, it appears that in this unique occurrence, God is purposely, as the door officially swings open to the Gentiles, reproducing this kind of Pentecost experience with them again, where these Jewish believers can see clearly what God is doing, because in verse 45, when the Jews with Peter saw this, look what it says, it says, they were astonished, and they said, wow, the gift of the Spirit is being poured out on the Gentiles also. Again, God was trying to confirm to them, yes, no more partiality. Yes, I want Gentiles saved just as I do Jews. And, and they're realizing that Gentiles do not have to become Jewish in order to get saved. All they got to do is come to Jesus. All they got to do is put faith in Jesus and that he is the direct access to relationship with God. So verse 46 says, Peter then answered saying, can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who've received the Holy Spirit just as we have, he says, and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. So Peter wisely suggests for these brand new Gentile converts to Christ that they be water baptized publicly. As the outward indication, the profession that, hey, you have just received Jesus Christ as your Savior for your sin. You've just surrendered to him as the Lord. Something miraculous and spiritual has happened in your heart. So he says, you need to put the stake in the ground outwardly and confirm we are a part of this spiritual family. We are followers of Jesus. So it was important that both those who were just saved and those who were already saved watching this see these people be water baptized. For those who were just saved, these Gentile converts, it was important for them to be water baptized in the name of the Lord because water baptism, we are told to do obediently by the Lord to confirm outwardly in a tangible way what's happened inside of our heart when we've accepted Jesus. It's a way to express it publicly, to put our stake in the ground, to make it evident that we've entered into this relationship with Christ and if you would, go public with your relationship with the Lord. You know, it's like a wedding. When a, when a couple gets married, they don't get married secretly. 
They invite guests and they purposely go through a public ceremony to what? To testify a change of life, a change that they're entering into a relationship because they want it to be public, purposefully. When my wife and I got married, we each wrote our vows individually. And when I wrote my vows to her, my closing statement was this. And I remember it. And I'm going to try to get emotional saying it. I made her cry when I said it. I said this. I said, may it be clear to all these witnesses and to God above that you are the only woman for me. Do you know what I was saying? Stamp this day. I'm in love with this woman. I will live in a relationship with this woman. And you know, when you're water baptized, that's what's going on. You're saying, look, it's got to be public because then it's kind of like real, you know? Once you're married publicly, now everybody knows. You can't hide it. (laughs) Same with Jesus. If you've never been water baptized and you're a follower of Jesus, you know what? You need to do that. You need to obey the Lord in that. It's critical for you and your soul. And to me, it seems that Peter is actually in this text here. I believe it says he commanded them to be water baptized. It seems, I could be wrong. It seems Peter's having the Jewish believers there baptize these brand new Gentile converts. And now they're not just witnesses, they're accomplices. And you want to talk about solidifying the fact that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Imagine Jews, after all the animosity of the years, baptizing Gentiles and putting them down under the water and bringing them up and then giving them a big hug and saying, you're my brother in Christ now. We are one in Jesus. We're spiritual family. We're bonded. And you know what? That's what the Spirit of the Lord does It sets aside all the differences and distinctions and makes us say, you know what? Irregardless of that, we're connected spiritually. We're family. When I first got saved, there was a chorus that used to be sang, and it was just a, a beautiful chorus that we used to sing. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. And they shall know that we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they shall know that we are Christians by our love. Would you stand with me? Let's pray together.